Welcome to the Truth Wars Podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. Olin has recently published a new book titled Bible Crawling, Finding Joy in God by Journaling Through the Psalms. You can find Olin's book on whipandstock.com. That's W-I-P-F and stock.com, as well as amazon.com. Now, here's Olin. Father, hear our prayers. Help us to make the most of our time. Whatever in our mind or our life would be distracting right now. Would you help us to push it aside and be all here? Would you help us drill down uh, deeply into your word, into your heart, into your character to understand more of who you are that we might be struck in a place of awe and humility and worship? And Lord, uh, help us press as far into the mystery of your providence as we are able. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Jacob, if you got your Bibles, let's open up to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4. And really what we're going to talk about, and in some sense this is going to be a two-part lesson, so you've got to come back next week if you want to get all of it, uh, is really God's sovereignty over evil. God's sovereignty over evil. So we're going to start today with Westminster Confession, chapter 3, section 1. God did from all eternity, excuse me, God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet, so is thereby, neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away but rather established. Now that's a mouthful. We're going to try to unpack it this morning. Let me just give you, if you want to just hang on to especially two phrases from that, uh, would be this. God, this, is, this is a summary, right? But God ordained sin in such a way that He's not the author of it. And let me just say from the, out, you know, the beginning, uh, this is probably the hardest question to answer, period, that I'm aware of. And I've heard other people much smarter than I am, like R.C. Sproul, like John Piper, uh, essentially say the same thing. And you try to read some of the greatest minds of all time, like the Apostle Paul, like St. Augustine, like John Calvin, and you'll see them coming to this kind of same conclusion. Uh, and I got a text from someone this week said, my six-year-old is asking a lot of questions that are hard to answer. I said, what's she asking? And basically, a six-year-old was asking, well, if God's in charge of everything, where'd sin come from? And, and that, in some sense, that is the hardest question. So, as I think I've said before in here, we're going to try to press as much as we can into the cloud of mystery, and yet there's going to be a point where we just have to stop. Okay? And, but we want to go as far as we can. So, God ordains sin in such a way that He is not the author of it. And then the second one is um, God does no violence to the will of His creatures. God is totally in charge. He's sovereign. He ordains whatsoever comes to pass. He is not surprised by anything. And it's not by just bare permission. He planned it all. He scripted it all. And yet, human beings are not robots. Angels are not robots. Some people try to solve the problem that way. I mean, I've had friends that even say, well, what, what if we just said we're robots? What's the problem with that? Well, main, the main problem is it's not true. <laughs> Uh, the secondary problem is nothing in our experience resonates with the fact that we're a robot. We, we know in our souls that we have uh, real agency, that we uh, have a real free moral decision to make 
and we thus have responsibility. So we're going to have seven points today to try to break this down. Okay? The first is God ordains and controls all things. And there's a lot of verses that I could use on all these points. I'm obviously not going to use all of them. Okay? But Exodus chapter 4, verse 11. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? So even God says about himself, if somebody's born and they're able to speak, that's because I planned it that way. If somebody's born and they're not able to speak, they're suffering. They have some terrible, you know, lack of ability uh, to use their mouth. I planned it that way. I mean, God willingly takes responsibility. Now, let's go to Job, and we're going to spend a little time here because this passage for everything we're talking about this morning is super important. And John Piper, I think last year, uh, I think it's the longest book he's ever written on Providence. Anybody read that book on Providence? I have not read it yet. I think it's 700 pages. I've heard it's really good. Okay, Aaron is holding up a copy there. But I heard an interview, and John Piper said the way that he started that book is he took a Bible, and he got two highlighters. One was colored blue. I don't remember what the color of the other highlighter was. And he wanted to go through the Bible, and every time that there was a statement, kind of like Exodus 4.11, that makes it obvious God is sovereign over everything, he marked it with blue. And then anytime it came to like what we might call a problem text, right? A, a text that makes it sound like, well, maybe God's not fully in charge of everything. He marked it with the other color. And when he said, when I got done, I had a very blue book. And so that's where he started. And the point is that that is the major point. That's why we're starting there, that the Bible affirms over and over and over again. Now, let's look at Job. Job chapter 1, starting verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on it, on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. Now just notice this first. Satan has to report for duty every day. Satan is that accountable to God that just like the good angels, he has to show up and give an account. And when God says, hey, what have you been doing? Satan has to report. Satan can't say, none of your business. He, he gives an answer. Whether he wants to or not, he does it. Verse 8, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? For years when I thought about the story of Job, the way that I imagined it or understood it wrongly was that Satan kind of came in and said, I hate Job. I want to go after Job. Let me at it. And God said, well, okay. It's not the way it happens. God is the one that picks the fight. God is the one that says, Satan, let me direct your attention towards my servant Job. Again, God is sovereign and control of all things. Verse 9, then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him? So Again, God was protecting him. God's sovereign over that. And his house and all that he has on every side, you have blessed the work of his hands. God's sovereign over that. And his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him. Do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So Satan does have some real authority, so to speak, but it's all delegated. Where did he get that authority? Only exactly what God gave him. And notice, he is going to stay within the limits that God gave him. He's never going to go outside those limits. Now, after basically all of Job's businesses get wiped out in a very violent way, skip down to verse 21. And he said, naked, this is Job, and he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. 
Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, does anything bother you about verse 21? And even if you're a good, reformed genius, just viscerally in your emotional soul, does anything bother you about verse 21? Okay, it says the Lord has taken away, even though technically it was Satan that took away. But look at the next verse. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. I mean, the author of the book knows what we might be tempted to say. He's like, no, no, there is a right way to say God did it. There's also a right way to say Satan did it, right? Because God was sovereign over it. He purposed it. And yet, do you see how this mysterious balance is coming out here in Job chapter 1? God ordained it. God was the ordainer of this evil that happened, and yet God was not the author of it. Let's keep going. The same pattern continues in chapter 2. Let's just see. It's like it's trying to pound this into our heads so that we don't miss it. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Again, he's picking a fight again. Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Just, you know, put that last sentence of verse 3 in your pipe and smoke on it for a little bit. Okay? Look at what God says. Satan, you incited me to destroy him without reason. Do you see how the two seemingly opposing points are blended together beautifully? I'm totally sovereign over what happened. So there is a sense in which I'm the ultimate one responsible. And yet you're really responsible for the fault in it, Satan. Um, keep going verse 4 then Satan answered the Lord and said skin for skin all that a man has he will give for his life but stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face and the Lord said to Satan behold he's in your hand only spare his life again delegated authority but regulated authority and Satan is, will not go beyond it he can't go beyond it and then down to verse 10 Job speaking again to his wife, but he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? Again, God's ultimately behind this. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. He's not in any type of sinful way blaming God. Okay? So that, that is maybe the best place in the Bible. We're going to look at several others where it's all woven together. Here's John Calvin uh, from the Institutes. Satan, no less than the angels who willingly obey, presents himself before God. He's speaking about this passage of Job. To receive his commands. He does so, indeed, in a different way and with a different end, but he still cannot undertake anything unless God so wills. God, listen, this is beautiful. God was the author of that trial which Satan and his wicked thieves were the ministers. God planned it. And yet Satan carried it out. Now, here has been maybe the most helpful illustration for me personally to understand how Satan works in God's created order. Think about uh, the United States government, okay? And my guess is it's similar in Australia. I'm not sure, but you've probably seen enough movies with American court drama, so I think we'll all get this. Uh, that what, what happens when you have some poor person who's accused of a crime? They say, you're right, you have a right, part of their Miranda rights, right? 
you have a right to legal representation. And if you can't afford one, what? One will be appointed for you. So think about it. The state government is saying, we think you're guilty of a crime. We're going to prosecute you. We're going to try to convict you of this crime and put you in prison or whatever and punish you. But because we want to be a fair and just society, we want you to have proper representation. And if you can't afford it on your own, we'll give you one for free, a public defender, to oppose in the courtroom the will of the government. You see how that works? That's the best way to understand what Satan is like. Is God is like, I'm going to vindicate my people. I'm going to justify the elect. I'm going to make sure they persevere to the end. But in a sense, it's like I want it to be a fair fight. Now, Satan is not our advocate. He's not our public defense attorney. He's our prosecuting attorney that's going to say, I don't think Job's faith is real. I think Job and Adam and Eve and all these other people, Peter, Judas, the only reason they follow you is because of the good stuff they get. Does that make sense? I'm not saying it answers all our questions, but that's the best understanding that I can get of how Satan functions in God's created order. Flip to the very end of the book, Job chapter 42, verse 2, and look at how the book ends. And we don't know for sure, but it's likely that Job was the first book ever written down. Just think about that. The, the first written revelation of God, the book of Job, all is about God's sovereignty, evil, suffering. But look at how it ends. Job 42, verse 2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That's a good one to memorize right there. You're going through hardship. You're going through suffering. I know that God can do all things and no purpose of his can be thwarted. Now, uh, let's just look at some more. Okay, Psalm chapter 115. You don't even have to flip here. You can just listen. I'll just kind of hit these quickly. Psalm chapter 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heaven. He does all that He pleases. God does whatever He wants. Um, I, uh, Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. If we just took a dice and rolled it, every single time we rolled it, we could roll it a trillion times, and God sovereignly appoints every single time what number will come up on the dice. A lot was an Old Testament kind of way to roll the dice, so to speak. Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14. Let's start in verse 24. The Lord of hosts is sworn. As I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. Skip down to verse 27. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will know it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? No one. Flip over to Daniel. Daniel chapter 4, uh, verse 35. I think this is after he makes King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man on planet earth, go crazy, and then he brings him back from his insanity. Um, and listen to what he says. Daniel chapter 4, verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will. Among the host of heaven, so this applies to the angels too, and among the inhabitants of earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Right. Side note, sometimes we think, well, God has to conform to the natural laws of the universe. No, he doesn't. The natural laws of the universe conform to God. 
Right? There, there's nothing existing that's higher than God, above God. And then just to get one from the New Testament, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So, He works everything according to the counsel of His will. So, that's point one. God ordains all things. Ordains, controls all things. Second point. God doesn't tempt people to sin. James chapter 1. This is where it starts to get a little messy. I mean, well, it's already messy, but it just gets more messy. James chapter 1, starting verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So God never tempts people to sin. We often want to blame God. You can't blame God. You can never say justly, why didn't you stop me from sinning, God? It's our fault. And listen, honestly, anytime you try to blame other people or other circumstances, what you're really doing is blaming God. It's just a more subtle form of it. Well, if I hadn't been in that situation with that person, feeling that way, I wouldn't have done that. You're blaming God. We're supposed to take responsibility. Right, 1 John 2.16, right? I think we all know that one. For all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father. All temptation to sin, it does not come from the Father. Here's Thomas Manton, great Puritan. He was the chaplain, I think, to Oliver Cromwell, but he's got a great commentary on the book of James. Listen to this. Okay, it's old English, but hang with me. Though God hath decreed that sin shall be, Okay, that's God ordaining sin. Yet He doth neither infuse evil nor enforce you to evil. He didn't make you do it. And He didn't put it in your heart. He doth not give you an evil nature or evil habits. These are from yourselves. He doth enforce you neither physically by urging and inclining the will to act nor morally by counseling and persuading or commanding you to it. God leaveth you to yourselves. He casteth you in His providence and in pursuance of His decrees upon such thing as are a snare to you. And it's like, well, wait a second. That last part almost sounds contradictory, right? He's like, God doesn't make you sin, but in His providence, He does put you in a place that will be a snare to you, a trap to you. It's like, well, that certainly sounds like tempting to me, right? But James clearly says, God doesn't tempt anyone. Now, third point. God does test people. And in parentheses, okay, God does test people in such a way that allows us to be tempted. Keep your finger in James because we might come back there for a second. And again, we're going to flip around a lot. You don't have to flip with me every time if you just want to listen. This is Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 14. Then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. That's the wrong verse. Uh, okay, Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 4. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice, and you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. That's the wrong verse as well. So anyway, there is a verse somewhere in Deuteronomy, uh, I promise I'm not making it up, that says that God tests us, okay? That God wants to know what's in our heart, and so He tests us. Okay, but that's fine. This is the... A uh, good reason to have multiple different verses written down for the same point. Okay, um, so let's go to the next one. Uh, okay, go to Matthew chapter four. Matthew chapter four. 
we could do this with all the gospel, all well, all the synoptic gospels, the first three. But let's just do it, with Matthew, Matthew chapter four. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit, right, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. <laughs> well, it, let's just be honest. It feels like we're mincing words at this point, does it not? Well, God doesn't tempt people, but He leads people into a place where they can be tempted. Well, what the Bible would say is. God tests people. God doesn't tempt people. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. But by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. So God was the one that tested Abraham, and yet it's not a temptation. Now, a couple of things. If you really want to study this in depth, part of what you'll find out is the Greek word for test and tempt is the exact same. So then you're like, wait a second. So how do we understand the difference between what, what counts as a test and what counts as temptation? Here, and here's the issue. It's the motive behind the person putting you in the situation. God was taken, and the clearest example is the Lord Jesus in the wilderness. God, the Father, through the Holy Spirit, was leading Jesus out into the wilderness for 40 days to test Him. And what was the motive of God's heart? To prove Jesus victorious, right? Go back to the Job example. What was God's main motive in that fight He was picking with Satan was to prove, no, no, Job's a real believer. Job has real faith. It's not perfect faith, but it's real faith. But what was Satan's goal in the exact same situations with Job, with Jesus? It was to tempt them to sin. So it's all about the motive. You call it a test if God's doing it to prove someone's faith. You call it a temptation when it's Satan doing it, trying to lure you into sin. God's never trying to get you to sin. God is willing to put you into situations where you might be tempted to sin, but the goal is to prove your faith. Now... Let me just pause and get uber practical for a second. I want you to think for a second about the sin that you're most often tempted to do. And I think most of the time when we're tempted to do whatever our little pet sin is, it's more this kind of self-control battle like, no, I'm so tempted to do this, but I don't want to do it again. What if we flipped the temptation, the test, onto its head and thought, oh, this is just another chance for me to be able to prove my loyalty to the Lord, prove my love to the Lord. That's what he's after. Satan's trying to draw me into sin, yes. But what's the Lord after in ordaining this trial is an opportunity for me to prove my faithfulness like the Lord Jesus did in the desert, like Job did when his family gets killed. I'm not saying it's going to solve all your problems. I do think it can be a helpful way to fight against the temptation that comes. So, fourth point, very important point, and one that we probably all know, but maybe we don't meditate on it enough, is God will never allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to bear. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. It means whatever you're going through, other people are going through it too. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted. He's totally in control of how much temptation you have. Beyond your ability... But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Or some translations say to stand up under it. 
So in the moment of every temptation, whether it's coming from Satan, whether it's coming from your own indwelling sin, whether it's just coming from the sinful world culture we live in, God is always making sure that it will never be more than you can bear. You always have the ability by His grace, if you're a Christian, to fight against it. Point five. Humans and angels have real free will. Now, this is where, you know, we have to get careful because people define the freedom of the will in different ways. So, how are we defining it here? Free will is being able to do exactly what you want to do. In a moment, right, human beings do exactly what they want to do. You're like, I want to be on a diet. I want to lose weight. And you come to the office and there's hot, fresh donuts. And you're like, I ate a donut, but I didn't want to. No, no, you really wanted to eat a donut more than you wanted to lose weight. Right? I didn't want to lie on my taxes. I wanted to be a man of integrity, but I did just lie just a little bit. No, well, you wanted to save some money more than you wanted to be a person of integrity. And we could just keep going. Even the person who hangs themselves in that moment. I don't want to hang myself. I'm, it's so bleak, it's so, but I'm just so overwhelmed. No, no, in that moment, even as a person that commits suicide is doing exactly what they want to do most. We always have warring desires. What desires the most? That's the one that we follow. And we do have that free will. That's that, that's that phrase that's so important from the confession. Nor is violence offered to the will of the creature. It's never like there's somebody over here trying to do righteousness and God's like, I'm not going to let you do righteous. I'm going to make you do sin this time. Never happens that way. Uh, all right, go to Matthew. Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17, verse 12. This is Jesus talking about John the Baptist. But I tell you that Elijah, and he's talking about John the Baptist, has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. They chopped his head off. Why? Because they wanted. That's the problem with the prophet. There's only two ways to respond to the prophet. Either repent or kill the prophet. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. They're going to do to me exactly what they want to do. Acts chapter 14, verse 16. Acts chapter 14, verse 16. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. He lets people, he lets whole nations do exactly what they want. Now, sometimes, especially in Reformed, Presbyterian, Calvinistic circles, we can get kind of squirrely, start talking about free will. So, this is from the Institutes by John Calvin, book 1, chapter 15, section 8. In my version, here's the subtitle, Free Choice and Adam's Responsibility, okay, by John Calvin. Therefore, God provided man's soul with a mind by which to distinguish good from evil, right from wrong, and with the light of reason as guide to distinguish what should be followed from what should be avoided. Therefore, Adam could have stood if he wished, seeing that he fell solely by his own will. But it was because of his will was capable of being bent to one side or the other and was not given the constancy to persevere that he fell so easily. Yet his choice of good and evil was free. Okay, again, that's John Calvin. And not that alone, but the highest rectitude, you could say righteousness, 
was in his mind and will, and all the organic parts were rightly composed to obedience until in destroying himself, he corrupted his own blessing. You hear what he's saying? It's like God set the man up to be obedient, gave him everything he needed internally and externally to obey. And yet God did give him a real free moral choice, and he took it in the wrong direction. So, point six. Thus humans and angels have corresponding responsibility. It's not just that we have free will. We have the responsibility that comes with free will. Um, let's look at several of these. Well, we'll do it. Luke chapter 17, verse 1. Luke chapter 17, verse 1. And he said to his disciples, Temptation to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. So, here's another way you could say that same thing. God has ordained that the world that we live in, there's going to be temptations to sin. But if you're ever the cause of tempting somebody else to sin, that's bad for you. You bear responsibility for that. Let's make it a little more personal. This is a good one to remember because it's Luke 22, 22. So when you're like, ah, I think there's a verse on that. Luke 22, 22. You're going to remember it. Speaking of Judas. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. You see how clear it is there? God has determined that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be betrayed by one of his disciples. But the man that's betraying him bears full responsibility. Here's Thomas Manton again. If there was no Satan to tempt us, we should tempt ourselves. Now guys, let me say two things here. Let me give an illustration. Imagine that I was, my kids were much younger for this purpose of this illustration. Okay? And let's say I'm at the beach in the ocean, and it's kind of a rough surf, and they're so young they can, they can barely swim. All right, so we'll say they're kind of age three. That's probably where I think most kids aren't able to swim. I don't know. Does that, does that sound close? All right, they're three. And I'm kind of holding them up. We're, we're standing out in the water, chest deep. If I let them go, they're going to drown. So I'm, I'm holding them. I'm giving them life, so to speak. And if one of my children, the children on the right, decides he's going to start cussing out his brother on the left, but I don't drop him under the water and drown him, in some sense, you could, you could rightly say, well, Olin, you're enabling him to sin. You do have ultimate control over that. You could stop it just like that if you want to. And yet I'm not responsible. He's his own free moral agent choosing to cuss out his brother. Does that make sense? That's not a perfect illustration. But there is a sense in which God is ordaining, controlling, upholding all things. Hebrews says that. God upholds all things by the word of his power. And yet... We are real, free, moral agents that have a responsibility and a free will to do what we want. And guys, let me just say this. Doesn't it ring true with your own life story? Is there any one of us that wants to say, if God would have just let me, I would have been such a better person. I would have been so much more nice and kind and godly, but God just kept forcing me into sin. I mean, does anybody really want to try to share that testimony with a straight face? There's no way. We, we know that when we sin, we do what we want. So point seven, all the way back to Genesis. Genesis 
Genesis chapter 20, God often intervenes and restrains people with common and special grace. Can you understand the difference in common and special grace? Common grace is the kind of grace that God uses on anybody and everybody. Pharaoh, Hitler, and Judas. Special grace is the kind of grace that he only uses on the elect. Saving grace. But this is a story. This is one of those times where Abraham was going down into a foreign country and his wife was so beautiful. He's like, you're so gorgeous. If we tell people you're my wife, they'll just kill me and steal you and stick you in the harem. So tell everybody you're my sister. And she goes along with that plan. Okay? And... Genesis chapter 20, verse 6. This is God speaking to Abimelech, the king of that area. Then God said to him in his dream, well, let's start in verse 5. Uh, now let's start in verse 3. Let's get the whole story. I like this little interchange. Verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. I mean, just what a dream, right? God says, hey, you're a dead man. Now, but I love this. He, now, Abimelech had not approached her, which, I mean, I don't want to get off too far here. But just think about that. You're a king. You have a harem. You just got somebody new to the harem. What's the wait? But for whatever reason, he had a busy meeting that night. We don't know. Okay. Verse 4, now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hand, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. So just pause there. Guys, I, I, what I'm wanting to see is how beautifully and seamlessly the Bible weaves together two truths that seem to our little finite man, minds to be in opposition. Do you see it? He's saying, God, I, I didn't know it's not my fault. I thought she was single. I'm a man of integrity and innocence. And God says, I know. I know you're a man of integrity. I know that you got duped. It's not your fault. You got lied to. But it doesn't stop there. That's not all that God says. And that's the, you're a real free moral agent with responsibility. But look at the second part of the sentence. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. He restrained him. Somehow in his grace, he restrained Abimelech from doing what he would have most naturally done. And guys, anything good and right in any of our lives, ultimately, why is it? It's the restraining grace of God making us better than we would be on our own. So God often intervenes in restraint. Listen, this is not just for genuine believers. I'm not sure Abimelech was a genuine believer. Highly likely he was more of a pagan king. One of the reasons that God restrains even the pagans and the wicked and the non-elect is this. If he didn't, what a terrible world to live in would planet Earth be, right? Because we're all Hitler at heart, we're all murderers in seed form. But again, there's lots of, there's lots of non-Christians that are really great people to have as a next-door neighbor. They're nice. They're friendly. They babysit your kids and you can trust them. They bring you free food sometimes and you can eat it. It's not poisoned. 
They're nice people. They're enjoyable people. They're doing productive stuff in society. It's God's restraining grace. Now, let me, uh, let me say this. Two seemingly opposing truths that the Bible perfectly, seamlessly weaves together for us. But imagine, what if the Bible only taught God's control and it never mentioned our free will and our responsibility? All it ever talked about was God's control. Like every passage that we looked at today. God controls, God controls, God controls, God controls. And there was nothing on man's free will, man's responsibility. How would that land on us? What, what, what would that make you think? What would that make you feel? What would that make you do? Probably not fight sin that hard. Because What's that? Probably not fight sin that hard because like, oh, God willed it anyway. So. Don't fight sin that hard. Eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we may die. And it's God's fault anyway. Any other thoughts? Guys, it would be utter fatalism. Quesarasarah. Whatever it will be, will be. I, there's nothing I can do anyway. Why try to make the world a better place? Why try to love my neighbor? Why try to improve myself? Why try to lose weight, save money, anything? It's like, ah, it's all destined. So I might just go party my brains out. I might just stay at home and lay on the couch and watch reruns of The Office and eat Cheetos all day, right? Because it's like nothing matters. God wrote the script. I can't do anything about it. What's the point? Now, let's swing the pen on the other side. What if all the Bible said is, you are a real, free, morally responsible agent. You have real agency. You can make a decision to do good or bad in every situation you're in, and it's all up to you. The burden is on your back. You're responsible. How do you think that would land on you? Too heavy. Too heavy is right. It's crushing. It's terrifying we would all be neurotic, right? You think of your OCD friend that you know best and you'd be worse. I mean, hyper-anxiety. Unbelievable perfectionism. I can't get out of bed in the morning because what if I make one wrong misstep, right? The whole butterfly effect, right? The butterfly flies over here and there's a hurricane. What if I breathe wrong? You couldn't move. So, I understand the way that the Bible presents both of these seemingly opposed truths is problematic. But to do it differently would present more problems. Do you see that? I think it was Charles Spurgeon that said something to the effect of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility seem like they are two lines that are parallel in our universe. They don't seem like they intersect. How do those same things ever go together? They don't. They just seem like they run parallel. But when we get into eternity, we'll see they actually do intersect. That makes sense. We'll understand in the next life. We will not understand in this life. And listen to what John Calvin says again. This is so good. Ignorance of providence is the ultimate of all miseries. I don't think that's an exaggeration. If you don't really know in the depths of your soul, Romans 8, 28, that God works all things together for the good of his people, and I'm one of his people, that's the ultimate misery. It's terrifying. I'm just out here all on my own. Left, who knows what's going to happen to me? It's all left to chance or fate. 
the highest blessedness lies in the knowledge of it. So, by way of conclusion, everybody flip over to Acts chapter 2. When seen rightly together, everything we're looking at here, two points are obviously highlighted. All right, the first one is this. The goodness, the rightness, the power, the glory, the majesty, we could go on and on, right, of God. His wisdom. How high, how holy, how lofty, right, the goodness of God. That's the first, that's the main point. But then there's a second point. The stupidity, the stubbornness, the sinfulness, the short-sightedness, the self-centeredness of humanity. We keep making sinful, stupid decisions against His will and our freedom. Those are the two points that are kind of rubbed in our face. But if both of those points are true, then a third point kind of arises. And this is, a, this is point three. There's, there's in two parts. There's 3A and there's 3B. 3A is this. The grace of God in general is keeping the world from being as bad as it could be. Right? I mean, it's like, and there are some places where it seems pretty darn bad. Aren't you glad we don't live in North Korea? We have pretty great lives. The general grace of God is making the world a much better place than it should be, could be. But then 3B is the special grace of God is saving people for all eternity through the blood of His Son. Sinners like me and you. So let's look at Acts chapter 2 and we'll be done with this. Do some questions if you want to. And probably a lot of you know where I'm going with this. This is in Peter's Sermon on Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, look at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the de definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Again, it's not bare permission. It was the definite plan. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosened the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held. So two last thoughts. The first is this. I understand, even as beautifully as the Bible is weaving these two things together, God is sovereign, man is responsible. It's not totally emotionally satisfying, is it? Because we're like... What about the person who's born in Turkey into a devout Muslim family? And so their whole life they get Muhammad and Allah and the Quran shoved down their throat. That's all they know. They never even hear of Christ. And they die in an earthquake. And what you're saying is they're in hell now? And God planned that? Doesn't seem, it can seem like God is kind of arbitrary and distanced and just playing games with people's souls, eternal souls of that. Part of what helps us deal with the hardship of that reality is this. God is not a distant, arbitrary ordainer. But he got up close and personal in Christ and said, 
the worst that any person could ever suffer, I'll suffer that more. Because on the cross, he literally took the full weight of the wrath of the Father. So again, may not answer all of our intellectual questions, but it can bring us a little bit closer emotionally to saying, this God is not distant and arbitrary and cold to human suffering. And yet, the best thing that this ought to help us see is, guys, if there's one thing in the universe that we ought to be clear and certain, oh yeah, God planned this one. God ordained this one. God locked this one in. It wasn't left up to chance. What is it? It's the life and the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that's my whole hope of salvation. If that didn't happen, we are all eternally ruined. And yet you think, but what was the greatest, most wicked evil and sin of all time? It was that. It was human beings were able to finally get their hands on God directly and they murdered him. So the worst sin ever, totally ordained by God. But the people were totally responsible for it. And yet out of those two things coming together comes my salvation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. We're in awe of your goodness and your wisdom. Humble us. Help us understand this as much as we can. And where we can't understand it, help us put our hands over our mouth like Job and just trust you and be grateful and thankful and motivated by grace to obey. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.